23. We'll be looking at verses 32 through 43. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible in front of you, or you can just grab your bulletin. The passage is before you, and we have already read it, although we will, in honor to the Lord, read it again. The Gospels are, if you were a film critic, you might critique them and say they're not quite well-paced. The first 30 years of Jesus' life typically go by in a blip. Some don't even record it. Some give it a few scant verses, but they really try to get to Christ at age 30. Once we get to age 30, we take a good deal of time with this three years of ministry, but once we get to what we call Holy Week, we slow down to a snail's pace. The Gospel of Mark has six of its 16 chapters spent on one week in the life of Jesus. Luke, that we'll look at today, gives four and a half chapters of his 24 chapters over to this very week. Generally, we think of the week as Holy Week, and we we talk about the individual days and the events on those individual days. We think of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry as people are proclaiming that this is the son of David who has come back to Jerusalem. They welcome him as a king. On Monday, we remember that Jesus turned over the tables in the temple seeking to cleanse them. On Tuesday, the rulers and the authorities in Jerusalem try to entrap Jesus in his words, seeing if there was something that they might get him to slip in to speak wrongly about so that they could find a way to accuse him. Shy of that, on Wednesday, they turn to Judas. They turn to betrayal. They turn to seek if there's one in his camp who will give Jesus up. Thursday, it's typically called Monday, Thursday. It is the day in which we recognize that Jesus celebrates his last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. With that, he also washes the disciples' feet. And then we come to Good Friday. Every year we ought to mention how odd of a moniker that is. It's Good Friday. We uphold that there was an innocent man betrayed by a friend wrongly accused, wrongly condemned, wrongly crucified and butchered and murdered, and we call all of it good. For indeed it is, inside the plan and scope of God's desire to save us and for our well-being, from our perspective, we can call it nothing but good. Tonight, I want to consider not the entire event of the cross, not the entire all that, that could have been said and all that will be said eventually by mankind about what has taken place there. I want to simply look at three participants at this scene, Jesus and the two criminals, and give you sort of a, a taste of what each of them sort of signifies. There are three pictures, I think, that we can find as we go through here that, that bring up other events in Scripture, one for each of them, or one of for each of them and the words that they speak as we kind of understand and begin to see what Luke is telling us here. Let us read then Luke 23. We'll begin again back in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of our God. The first picture I want you to consider is Satan and worldly power. Satan and worldly power. Jesus here is said to have been hanged with two men. Luke calls them generally criminals, which certainly they are. They are criminals and they even know that they are guilty. We can kind of do better than just a general idea of criminals by the very fact that they're being crucified. People weren't crucified for stealing a bit of fruit from the market. They weren't crucified for not paying their taxes. Generally speaking, this specific form of capital punishment was there not simply to kill somebody, but to make an example out of them. And Rome typically saved it for people who rebelled against Rome, who sought to overthrow Rome or plot against Rome in some way, shape, or form. These men likely were zealots, somehow seeking to free Jerusalem and the Jews from the grip of Rome. They had plotted against Rome in some form or fashion, sought to undo the Roman authority in the area. They were caught, they were tried, they were convicted, and they were crucified. And oddly, as we read in verse 39, one of the criminals takes up a taunt against Jesus. It helps that Luke tells us that he railed against Jesus because knowing that he was one of the men who was crucified with Jesus, if you just had the statement on its own, you might think that this is a cry of help. You, are you kidding me? You're, you're the Christ? Well, then come down off the cross and save us as well. You could, you could almost hear this as a statement of faith, but Luke tells us it's not a statement of faith. He's not saying this in the hopes that Jesus actually will. He has no doubt that Jesus will stay on that cross until he is dead. Rather, it is to mock him, to make fun of him. He has no faith that Jesus is coming down off that cross. It is stupid. And it is a foolish cry to place himself along those that he actually considers to be in power, which are not the Jew, or which is not Jesus, the Jewish rulers and the soldiers. He's just jumping on the bandwagon. He is some sort of sycophantic fluky who wants to come alongside those in power so that he could be seen to be with those who are in power. Every type of mockery is some sort of statement of power here. The rulers possess the power to condemn, and Jesus doesn't seem to have the power to undo that condemnation. The soldiers have the power to crucify. Jesus doesn't seem to have the power to undo that. The criminal has absolutely no power, only the power to follow, only the power to seem like he is aligned with people who have power. This is precisely the thing that the faithful criminal or the noble criminal seems to call him out on. He says, have you no fear of God? We are being condemned just like this man. That, that word condemned automatically makes us picture condemnation before God. 
And perhaps that is precisely what this man is saying. Perhaps he he has this sense that what they're undergoing is nothing but the condemnation of God. Perhaps he is heady enough to have Deuteronomy 21-23 in the back of his head, which tells us that everyone who is hanged on a tree is accursed. I think likely what he means, though, is not that. I think what he is talking about is not the condemnation of God, but the condemnation of Rome, the judgment of Rome. We are under the same judgment. He's saying, why are you joining with the soldiers? Those soldiers who are mocking Jesus crucified you as well. Why are you joining in with the Jewish leadership? Which one of them is signing a petition? Which one of them is starting a movement to free you from the cross? They want you crucified just as much as they want him crucified. The soldiers are not going to work on your behest and your behalf. What a stupid thing to do. He says, we, we are rightly condemned, but he is innocent. Why rail at him? We should really see what's going on here under the surface. This man was not just acting as a coward and a minion but he's acting as everyone does who follows the power of the world. After all, this isn't the first time that Jesus, at a time of great need, was asked questions. It's not the first time when, finding himself in great physical distress, Jesus had his mission, his calling, and his very being questioned. Three times, the rulers say, aren't you the chosen one of God? The soldiers say, aren't you the king? This criminal says, aren't you the Christ? The very beginning of his ministry matches the very end of it. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus out to the desert. Forty days and forty nights without eating, Satan comes to him and says precisely the same kind of thing. If you are the Son of God, make rocks into bread. If you are the Son of God, then take all of the nations by force. Just just worship me and I will give them to you. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle. Show all the world that your Father will save you if you are the Son of God. He wanted Jesus to prove, just as the Jewish leadership wanted Jesus to prove, just as the soldiers were begging for him to prove, where his power really was. You think that you're powerful, you think that you're mighty, demonstrate through the power that only the world cares about. Demonstrate to us by a display of your power. Jesus didn't fall for it then, and he doesn't fall for it now. The beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, he stays faithful to the calling that God has placed upon him. This is a lie. It's the same lie that Satan tells throughout the entire scope of Scripture. It's the same lie that he told to Adam and Eve. It's the same lie that plagued the first generation that was brought out of Egypt. It's the same lie that all the judges succumbed to. It's the same lie that persuaded the kings of old. It's the lie that Satan always gives, that the power of the world will save, that the power of the world will make right, that the power of the world will win out. The rulers and the soldiers criminal, Satan, they're all wrong. They're wrong because they thought that the greatest display of power would be for Jesus to come down off of the cross. 
for him to, whether miraculously, or by the intervention of God, by calling down legions of angels to pull himself off the cross, to destroy the Roman forces. But Jesus knew better. Have no doubt. Jesus could have done that. I have no doubt that he could have ripped the nails out of his hands and his feet and beaten and bludgeoned to death the soldiers that were there with the very cross that they crucified him with. The problem is that that is a weak display of power. That is, that is the way that the world thinks of power. But that's not the way Jesus thought of power. Jesus knew he could come down off the cross. Jesus knew he could show that kind of power. But he had a bigger power in mind. The power not to come down off the cross, but the power to stay on it. The power of the world is always beckoning us and calling us. It's always pleading with us about its own usefulness, its goodness, and its utility. But there is a greater power, one that suffers and dies. That power wielded by the one who here entrusts himself not to the judgment of the rulers and not to the judgment of Rome, but to the one who judges justly. That power is on full display. These men mock because that's what fools do. They're blind to a greater power that is directly in front of them. Which brings us to the second image because not all of them are blind. There is one who truly does see what's going on. And that brings us from Satan and worldly power to Joseph and urgent pleas. They're not all blind. The noble criminal seems to understand what's going on right in front of him. He rebukes this criminal, and in that same sense, rebukes the, the, those rulers and the soldiers who were right there in front of him. He seems to know something about Jesus. We're not told his backstory. We're not told how he knew these things about Jesus. After all, he even knows that his name is Jesus. At no point in time since these two criminals were introduced do we ever have Jesus' name being spoken. His titles are given. He is the chosen one of God. He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah or he is the king. Regardless which title you want to pick, the titles are being used, but not his personal name. This man seems to know it. He knows enough that while this man is being penalized, clearly being crucified, and everyone who is there seems to, who is in authority, seems to believe that he deserves it. He knows that the man is innocent. And what's more, he truly trusts that this man is king. Don't know if he heard Jesus preaching somewhere, if he saw some miracles somewhere along the line. Who knows how he came to know these things, but he seems to know them. This is an incredible confession. We, we don't really know what he means by these words. When he tells Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, what does he mean by that? The man's crucified with him. He was beaten mercilessly before he was crucified with him. And being now crucified with him, he still thinks he's going to come into his kingdom somehow. Does he, does he think that even though the people are mocking him, that truly Jesus will come down off that cross, that, that angels will descend, or, or God the Father will miraculously deliver him? Does he, does he believe that Jesus will die and then be resurrected again? It's hard to say, really. Not sure that we know. Even, even the question, the statement, the plea that he makes, just, just remember me. 
I think it's likely that he just wished not to be forgotten. Carry my name on, please. Don't let me forever to be known as the criminal who was crucified, but let me be known as the man who was faithful to our king, even in the midst of the worst of his life. When he truly needed somebody there, let me be remembered. His words, I think, indicate more to us than simply that. Perhaps that's all he meant by them. But I think that there's a better picture of what's going on. That is the picture of Joseph. Joseph's story is long. You can read about it in the middle and end of the book of Genesis. He upset his brothers. His brothers wanted to kill him. Eventually, they sold him into slavery. Eventually, that slavery led to his imprisonment. Now, during all of these horrible events in his life, and those are pretty horrible events, I don't know if you've gone through something like that, but that's not a fun trip, God still is with him, and he's still blessing him. He's still doing well by him. Even in prison, he's doing well by him. But no matter what kind of blessing you're getting, and no matter how good things are going for you, if you have the ability to tack on the three words, while in prison, no matter what good has happened, it's still going to be bad, okay? Yes, mom. I had a wonderful birthday while in prison puts a huge damper on the first part of that sentence, right? And so Joseph is being blessed by God. He's being clearly led by God. God is helping him, but he's still in prison. And while in prison, and while doing well in prison, he finds that there's two people there who have some sort of mishap. We don't know what has happened. We don't know what has led them there, but in his presence are the baker and the cupbearer. Cupbearer doesn't seem like it's too high of a position, neither does Baker really, but Cupbearer was an incredibly high position. You shouldn't just think of him as a glorified waiter. After all, it wasn't just that the Cupbearer tasted the wine. He did much more than that. He tasted the wine to show that it wasn't poison, but even if it was poison, they knew that not all poisons acted instantly. So the Cupbearer wasn't just one who tasted the wine, it was left up to him to procure procure the wine. He was to provide the wine. He was to oversee all of the food and all of the drink that was to come into the presence of the Pharaoh so that he could be sure that none of it was tainted and none of it was wrong. The drinking of the wine was assigned to Pharaoh. It wasn't a test. So he was an incredibly important man. He held the happiness of Pharaoh and the life of Pharaoh in his hands. They find themselves in prison for some reason. They come up meet Joseph. It's not just that they're in prison. Now they've had dreams, and their dreams are disconcerting to them. They haunt them. They don't know what to make of him. Joseph says, hey, dreams, them's from God. I can help you with that. They say, well, sure, give it a shot. So the first cupbearer tells him what the dream is, and Joseph says, listen, this is what the dream means. You're going to return to Pharaoh. You're going to kneel before him, and Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and he's going to restore you. And he says, just, just remember me. Just put my name on your lips so that by some means you might help me. The very same thing that the man on the cross says. You might think, well, that's not People have to be remembered all the time. That's not much to compare. I agree, that's not much. A couple more things of interest. First, you'll notice that both Joseph and the cupbearer and the baker 
are all found in prison, and there really is no hope that any of them will get out. There's no reason for any of them to think that they're going to get out. And the only reason Joseph thinks he's going to get out is his faith in the fact that he is interpreting this dream correctly. And even then, he doesn't know that the cupbearer is going to remember. All he has is faith that this man's going to do his job. Secondly, he doesn't just say that Pharaoh's going to lift up his head. He says Pharaoh's going to lift up his head in three days. Third, make of this what you will, the baker does not have as good of a report. The baker finds out that his head will be lifted up, but his head will be lifted up and hanged. And the way in which it's reported in Genesis twice over is that he will be hanged on a tree. In each case, the man who is in need has to entrust himself to somebody who is in the exact same position he is in with no real hope that he is going to get delivered, with no real insistence or assurance that this man will ever be able to deliver on anything. As a matter of fact, everything screams that it is a futile hope, even more so for Jesus. Cup bearers and people get delivered from prison all the time. He's being crucified. He is dying. But this man believes. He insists you will come into your kingdom, and when that happens, remember me. How will Jesus get to his kingdom? Who knows? How is he going to help this man? Who knows? But he holds out hope that he will. And so, to secure this, he has the same simple plea that Joseph has. Just remember me. The cupbearer, ironically, forgets. Two years go by. Jesus is a better cupbearer. Jesus doesn't forget. Jesus never forgets those who call upon him. This criminal who has nothing to offer, nothing to barter for, nothing but a simple plea for help, he has everything that he could possibly need crucified next to him. And unlikely, that we will know any better truly than the cup or than, than this criminal does. We know the what of the crucifixion really well. We know that the crucifixion of Jesus removes from us our sin. We know that it frees us from our penalty. We know that he dies in our stead. The how of all of that is tricky. How does Jesus come into his kingdom? How, how is it that, that God will help us through this? We know that it happens. We don't know how it happens. Much like the thief on the cross, we know very little about what's going to happen. But we can know, just like this man, that we have one help, one aid, one person who can deliver us, and he hangs on a cross. Not by the power of the world, but by the power of the cross, and more important than that, by the power of the one on the cross. Trust in him like you're hanging next to him. Third, let's talk about the picture of Adam and God's presence. Talked about Satan and the worldly power. We talked about Joseph and an urgent plea. And now Adam and God's presence. It's unlikely that we truly see the fullness of what Jesus promises this man. Because the promise is honestly all out of accord with what the man has asked for. The reason why is because we live in a democracy. 
So we, we have, and we hold up almost universally, Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president of all time. And he's not just the greatest president of all time because of the things that he did as a president. He's also sort of just like the emblem of what it means to be an American president. Because he was born, in the, literally, in the backwoods of Kentucky. He made his life by his own hands. He wasn't born into nobility. He scrapped and fought for everything that he had. And he gave everything that he had. It is, it is the quintessential American success story. He is one of us. He's the kind of God that you would imagine you could go and see a show with. Might not want to, but nevertheless. That's unlike the way noble people, rulers and leaders, held themselves for the vast majority of history. They were different from you and I. To be in their presence was to be in the presence of a godlike figure. You just didn't walk up to the queen. You didn't just walk up to a king. They were distinct and different from you. They were set aside. They weren't one of you. Jesus isn't like either of those two things. He clearly is not like Abraham Lincoln. He's not one of us. He is everything that those kings and queens thought they were and weren't. He is better than every one of us because he is made of different stuff. He is, he is not just a man, but he is God in man. He is the Lord of all, the creator of heaven and earth and powers and principalities come from him and through him and to him are all things. So he is quite different. But he is not like those kings and queens of old because he doesn't mind you. He loves you. He'll hang out with you. He will spend time with you. And that is one of the brilliance of the promise that he makes this man. The, the promise is, today you will be with me. He seals this with a solemn, it's like Jesus is getting crucified. He's struggling to breathe. And he stops and says, truly, truly I say to you, listen to the words I'm saying, you will be with me today. And he says, in paradise. Tricky little word, that, in paradise. Immediately when we hear that word, it's a very picturesque word. We immediately think of, you know, white sand beaches, turquoise sea, palm trees softly swaying in a fairly warm, not quite humid breeze. The sun's out, but it's not hot. It's perfect. It's Hawaii. It's Tahiti. Someplace tropical. Certainly not, you know, other places. The word has been been taken and, and changed in our heads in the pictures that we get. This word's used three times in the New Testament, almost always translated with the word paradise, almost always translated in exactly the same way. It's only used here, 2 Corinthians 12.4, when it, Paul talks about being lifted up into the paradise of God, and in Revelation 2, where the promise is that for those who are faithful, they will go into paradise. It's used three times in the New Testament, it's used 28 times in the Old Testament. But as you're thinking, you're trying to think of where you've ever read the word paradise in the Old Testament, and you haven't. The way it is always translated in the Old Testament, always, every single time, is with the word garden, because that's what it means. It is a garden. And Luke uses this word here because that's what he means to imply. The picture is not Tahiti, the picture is Eden. And what Jesus seems to be saying to this man is, you are going back with me, or you're going forward with me. Some way, you are going to enter into Eden with me. 
The very thing that you lost, you will regain. The very thing that was taken away from you, I am giving back to you. As Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, the sword was positioned there in the seraphim. Sword that spun in every direction to kill whomever might enter. And Jesus is saying, you will enter in because I will take the sword for you. By my blood, you will walk in. And Eden is the promise, not just of perfection, but of the presence of God. That you will be with God forever. You'll have a home. You'll have land. You'll have blessing and peace. You'll have comfort and joy. He's saying, today you will be with me where God is. In the end, Jesus doesn't promise this man wrath for his enemies. He doesn't promise him retribution. He doesn't hold out to him even power. What he promises him is peace and provision, comfort and goodness. He promises him land, home, and being. He promises him to not simply remember his name. He's not going to just remember his name. It's not as though Jesus shows up with the apostles later and is talking to them about the cross, saying, man, things got hairy there for a minute, but that guy who was next to me, Bob, Bill, Brian, can't remember his name. He was really encouraging. It was fantastic. I had a good time. I wish he was here. That's not what, that's not what he means. When Jesus remembers, it's that he remembers he's going to place him with him. He will dwell with him forever. In the end, this is what the cross promises us. That God has overturned the power of the world. That God has provided a way through the cross for you to enter back into his presence. And that God has invited you in, has made you his, and he will protect you there forever. Friends, today is a reminder for us to no longer seek the power of the world, to not broker and long for the respect and acknowledgement from those who would, in the end, simply cry out for our own crucifixion. Or rather, it is a day for us to plead with the one who has the power to act for our sake and on our behalf, and who has already done so. Plead with Jesus, for he will remember, and he has indeed delivered through the cross. And it's a reminder to us that we don't need to plumb the depths of the, the knowledge of God, of the sacrificial system, of the atonement, in order to understand what Christ has done for you. It will and will always be, in the end, a mystery to you, even if a wondrous one. And your understanding might always be foggy about how these things came to be, but like the faithful criminal, you are called to believe so that you too might have your death in Jesus and be raised to newness of life. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word and thankful for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. He has died. He has been bruised and he has been punished. He has taken wrath in our place. What more could have been spent, what more could have been done in our stead than what our Lord Jesus Christ has given? It is enough. And indeed, when he cries, it is finished. It is indeed finished, although it is not over. We are grateful for his sacrifice on our behalf. We are grateful that his life was spent for ours. May we spend our lives not earning that salvation, but loving the salvation that he has given us and giving him glory and honor for the work that he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.